Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Coming up, Justin Trudeau spent millions on his failed bid for United Nations Security Council seat. A politician takes a stand against cancel culture and a look at Iran's upcoming sham elections. The Andrew Lawton Show starts right now. Hello and welcome to The Andrew Lawton Show, Canada's most irreverent talk show here on True North. We spoke earlier on in the year when the federal budget came out about the billions and billions and billions of dollars Canada had to spend on debt because of the deficits that are racking up more debt than Canada can really count. As we mentioned, the Canadian Taxpayers Federation's debt clock actually ran out of digits, which is never a good sign when trying to track government spending. But it is interesting to look at where the priorities for government spending really are. And obviously in the last year, because of government-imposed shutdowns, the government's had to spend a bit of money on providing aid to people that can't work, people that can't run their businesses. But we were hardly on a good spending track in the lead-up to the pandemic because of a very significantly misguided set of priorities from the Liberals, one of which involved chasing around a United Nations Security Council seat for Canada, which was never going to happen. But that didn't stop, according to documents unearthed through access to information by the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, the federal government spending 86 million dollars. 8.6 million dollars. That's what the Liberals spent on trying to get Canada on the Security Council. Those seats, of course, went to Norway and Ireland. And there are some foreign policy considerations that I want to get to in a couple of moments, but let's just talk about the dollar figure first. Joining me on the line is Canadian Taxpayers Federation Federal Director Franco Terrazano. Franco, good to talk to you. Thanks for coming on today. Hey, Andrew, man. Thanks so much for having me on today. So $8.6 million. Now, I mean, even if we had won the seat, I'm not sure how you'd quantify its value, but certainly for a bid that a lot of people in international politics thought was a long shot in the first place, and that we know in retrospect and hindsight, we didn't actually get $8.6 million is quite a bit. What was actually making up that number? Yeah. So, I mean, at the end of the day, we now know this was a complete waste of taxpayers' money. And, you know, even if we were successful in getting that Security Council seat, uh, spending millions of dollars would have been a huge waste of taxpayers' money. But now that we find out that we uh, we obviously didn't get that Security Council seat, we'll spend an $8.6 million for this failed campaign was really a huge swing and a miss uh, for taxpayers, right? And and if we break down that $8.6 million per vote, it comes to about eighty thousand dollars that we spend on each vote right that's a good salary for so many canadians so i think that really just exemplifies how much of a waste of money this really was for taxpayers 80 how much was that again eighty thousand dollars per vote was spent on trudeau's failed campaign bid Wow. And that was, yeah, the 108 votes we got short of Norway and short of Ireland, who ended up claiming the seats that were up for grabs. And when we look at that, one thing I note here is that salaries make up a huge part of it. This was a bid that was going from 2016 to June of 2020. The salaries alone, $6,218,498. Now, in fairness to the government, were these people multitasking where they happen to be assigned to this campaign? Or was this something they were going all in on in in the course of their duties. 
you know, we're still looking for the complete breakdown of cost. But one thing that we have to point out, you mentioned the $6 million in salaries. Well, we're also spending thousands of dollars on consultants and contractors. And, you know, when we break down what we do have, what we do know that was spent on is this was a huge waste of money. This is not value for taxpayers money, right? You might as well take this money and light it on fire. Let me just run down a list of things that the government was spending it's it's mind-boggling. Uh, we were wasting money on wine, on chocolates, on Canada gloves, uh, maple syrup. You had lollipops. You had keychains, candles, right? So so this wasn't a good use of taxpayers' money. Even if we won, this was really uh, schmoozing up bureaucrats, schmoozing up diplomats, and it ended up coming with a big price tag for Canadian taxpayers. I think I think there's a, a sub story in this, which is that this is the best we can do in Canada is, you know, maple syrup. We just stick to the cliches and pay a lot of money for them. And those cliches aren't enough. And you've had to uh, submit multiple access to information requests, as I understand, to even get these numbers. Yeah, that's correct. Our investigative journalist, James Wood, he, he deserves a lot of credit for shining a light on all this spending. We still have uh, a more aid tips in with the federal government. So, you know, on the one hand, um, I'm really looking forward to seeing just what other types of ways that this government uh, spent our money on. But on the other hand, I mean, this is very it really gets your blood boiling, doesn't it? When you see the federal government wasting millions of dollars on things like this, especially when you look at the real issues that we're facing here in Canada. Right. The massive deficits, the massive debt problem that we have. And now we see our federal government thought that it was a good time to be wasting millions of dollars uh, for bragging rights, essentially. Yeah, and I think there is something to that that speaks to priorities and a lack thereof. And and just again, we're not talking about a huge dollar value here, but I have to bring up a related story that just came across my radar. Margaret Atwood did a book tour in Australia that taxpayers in Canada somehow had to pony up some money for. What happened here? Yeah, we, we, we paid, what, $10,000 uh, so that Margaret Atwood who is a, a, a well-known author. So she who, who could drop $10,000 on the street and not realize it, by the way. <laughs> yeah, so exactly, right? Um, net worth in the millions of dollars. Um, and, and we were spending money so that she could promote her own book, right? Her own book. Uh, so another complete waste of taxpayers' money. And, and of course, we have to really put the microscope on federal spending these days when when we're more than a trillion dollars in debt. That number is going up by about $424 million every single day. So we do have some very legitimate concerns and challenges that this federal government yeah. needs to be looking at, but instead they're just wasting money left, right, and center. Although, in fairness, at $10,000, it would have been cheaper just to hire her to go and do the UN Security Council <laughs> campaign. Then at least we're, we're out the ten grand instead of the $8.6 million. Well, and Margaret Atwood probably would have done a, a bit of a better job than, uh, than the folks they spent that money on. Franco Terrazano, Federal Director for the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Thanks for coming on. Hey, Andrew, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. <laughs> I love that. $10,000 for Margaret Atwood to promote her own book which she is making money on, and then $8.6 million to promote Justin Trudeau's attempt at legacy building, a seat on the UN Security Council. And like I said at the beginning of the show here, the dollar value is a component of this. A lot of people were saying this was just a bad idea from the get-go. It wasn't going to happen. You look at the countries we lost to, North, not North Korea, we might as well have Norway, and Ireland. These are small countries. If it was just about spending money, we would have won. But it's not. It's about building relationships and it's about credibility. And it was actually quite shameful last year. 
And I remember when Francois-Philippe Champagne went down to New York, he put the ballot in the box in the UN General Assembly and ended up coming up short. And I remember distinctly that this was a, a situation where Canada was forced to reckon with its place in the world. Justin Trudeau promised that Canada was back, but the reality was he did not have the cachet he thought he did and pretended he did. Canada, he, he was trying, in, in fairness, I mean, he was trying to get Canada to a place where it was punching above its weight, but the country is simply not taken as seriously on these security things as Justin Trudeau wants to pretend it is. And there's a reason for that. I mean, we're talking about a country here when it came to renegotiating NAFTA was talking about gender equity and diversity. We're not talking about a country that represents itself in a serious way on serious issues, which are supposed to be not exclusively, but which are supposed to be the dominant issues for the United Nations Security Council. So pontificating on gender equality and diversity and all of that stuff. And as we saw with Justin Trudeau last week, not wanting to deal with the real security threats like China, or as we'll explore later on in this show, Iran, how are you to be taken seriously? So the $8.6 million really adds insult to injury here that this is what Trudeau thought was going to be Canada's future, but it ended up being just a waste of time, a waste of four years, and more debt for Canadians. We've got to take a quick break here. When we return, more of The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. Welcome back to The Andrew Lawton Show. I want to talk in this segment about a few related stories from the last week that aren't even really newsworthy at this point. I mean, they're newer innovations in what are basically becoming the norms that we deal with on a day-to-day basis. This historic figure being cancelled, this monument being defaced, all under the auspices of trying to make people who lived in the 1900s, the 1800s, the 1700s, the, I don't know, the 4000 BCs or whatever, make them all live up to the standards that we set out for how you're supposed to be in 2021. And John A. Macdonald, I've talked about John A. Macdonald's legacy numerous times on the show. Here's a guy who was Canada's founder without him there would be no Canada. This is something that a lot of people who don't understand the country's history do not realize, that John A. Macdonald staked a lot of political capital on the idea of a Canadian confederation and had to continue to do so to his own personal detriment to hold confederation together. And because we are now in this moment, this moment in time where we keep reevaluating and reassessing, even when no one of substance is really talking about these issues, we now have to continue this defense. Jason Kenney, the Premier of Alberta, was asked at a press conference this week what he thinks of statues of John A. Macdonald. And to his credit, he gave a very detailed answer about the importance of standing up for Canadian history. I'm not going to play the whole seven minutes. If you want to see that, if you're a glutton for punishment and you like watching seven minutes of political press conferences, you can head on over to my Twitter page. I posted it there. But I'll play a snippet here because he, he actually takes a stand against cancel culture and is correct to point out that that's what it is that's driving this assault on John A. Macdonald. If we want to get into uh, canceling every uh, figure in our history who had, uh, who who took positions on on issues at the time that we now judge harshly and rightly uh, in in historical retrospective, but if that's the new standard, then um, I think almost the entire founding leadership of our country gets cancelled. Tommy Douglas, who recommended the use of eugenics uh, to... um, 
sterilize the weak, as he said, uh, to uh, if we talk about mem members of the, fa fa the famous five, uh, heroes of Canadian feminism and the fight for equality for women. Uh, some of them were advocates of uh, eugenics that we would now regard uh, as deplorable. So uh, if we go full force into cancel culture, then we're canceling uh, uh, most, if not all, of our history. Instead, I think we should learn from our history. We should learn uh, from our achievements, but also our failures. So very well said, Premier Kenny. And by sharing that, I got a whole bunch of backlash from people, activists that were saying that, you know, this is insensitive to the bodies that were just found at that large gravesite at the Kamloops Residential School, as though these two things are related. A point that bears repeating here is that the absence of perfection from historic figures does not equate to the presence of evil. And a lot of the folks who are trying to drive these cancel campaigns of historic figures are actually trying to cancel history itself, a phenomenon in most cases they don't seem to understand. We can accept the darkness and dark chapters of Canada's history while also looking at the broader story that is Canada. And John A. Macdonald, in no uncertain terms, cannot be classified as a villain when you have an objective assessment of Canada's history. But that doesn't matter. Like I said, no one's interested in facts. Ryerson University, named after Egerton Ryerson, is going through this. The journalism school's publications are being renamed ahead of the next school year, dropping any reference to the school name itself. There are currently two publications, the Ryerson Review of Journalism and the Ryersonian Newspaper. And and because they say that Egerton Ryerson was indisputably one of the architects of the residential school system, they're going to change these names. Now, if you really want to make a stand, why don't you resign from Ryerson? Why don't you rip up your degree with Ryerson on it? Why don't you really go all the way if you're insistent on destroying the legacy, which is now the school's legacy as much as it's a part of the country's legacy? Now, look, I'm a firm believer in the fact that people can make their own decisions to associate with whomever they want. The Eggerson-Ryerson statue was defaced just a day prior to the news outlets or media organizations at Ryerson making that call. I do not support the vandalism that takes place there. Edmonton's, the Edmonton Eskimo, oh no, sorry, you can't say that. Okay, <laughs> let's try this again. The Edmonton Elks as they're now known. They just announced the new name for the team a year after announcing they would change the name of the formerly Eskimos, the artists formerly known as Eskimos. And it was odd. This change happened like a lot of other changes in the wake of the George Floyd protest, as though there's a direct connection between uh, this uh, very brutal uh, takedown by police in Minnesota and a longstanding CFL team in Canada. But the problem is that this comes in waves. And I mentioned on the show earlier this week that the activist mob doesn't really care about the individual circumstances that they decide to pipe up over. They see this all as one big prolonged war and any individual battle, no matter how insignificant it may be to them, they will take up. But cumulatively, these things are significant because at the end of it, you have, well, the Ryerson newspapers have changed their name. This is going to apply pressure to every other school newspaper that might have a historic figure in the name to change that and so on. And eventually there's not going to be all that much left because one thing that the left does very well is move right on to the next fight without losing any momentum. 
So that's why it's so important to stand up for John A. Macdonald, to stand up for the country's history, because it's not just about drawing the line around a few, the word they use is problematic figures. It is genuinely about anyone who had the misfortune of living in a time prior to now. That is no longer compatible with 2021. We've got to take a break. When we come back, more of The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. Stay with me. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. Welcome back to The Andrew Lawton Show. A couple of moments ago, we spoke about Canada's failed bid for a seat at the United Nations Security Council. One of the reasons this is such an interesting discussion is because Canada wants to pretend it is the grand poobah of human rights and talk about all of this soft power it wants to project and all of that jazz. But when it comes to the real things that are happening in the world and the real nemeses of freedom, Canada is nowhere to be found. Canada will not say an unkind word about China, and Canada has by and large turned a blind eye to what's happening in Iran, where I want to turn for this segment, because coming up on June 18th, Iran is having a presidential election, and I say election with a little bit of reticence because all of the candidates running for the election have been pre-selected by a council which is selected by Iran's Ayatollah, by the regime. So it really isn't an election at all because you can't vote against the regime, which is handpicking who can stand for election and thus what the election's result is going to be. There have been a number of protests of this, including a boycott campaign from Iranian dissidents and a resistance group, the National Council of Resistance of Iran. Joining me from the NCRI's Foreign Affairs Committee is Ali Safavi. Ali, good to talk to you again. Thanks for coming on today. Of course. Thank you very much, Andrew, for having me on the show again. And, uh, Looking forward to a great conversation. Now, this idea to people who value democracy of candidates being pre-selected by basically the status quo, by the regime, is, is quite uh, incompatible with, with democracy. And, and this is not just a theoretical uh, value that they have there. They, they've disqualified dozens of candidates, as I understand it. Indeed. In fact, uh, in the past 40 years, uh, the electoral process in Iran has never been about the Iranian people expressing their opinion freely and fairly. In one word, it has been a travesty, which is neither fair nor uh, free. And as you mentioned, the candidates uh, must be vetted. Interestingly, the body that does the vetting is a 12-member uh, body called the Guardian Council, six of whose members are appointed directly by the uh, regime supreme leader Ali Khamenei, and the other six are appointed by the judiciary chief who is himself appointed by Ali Khamenei. So in effect, he is uh, appointed all 12 members, and uh, indeed, uh, for anybody to pass uh, the, if you will, uh, reality check test for the Guardian Council, they must prove their heartfelt allegiance and practical obedience uh, to the Supreme Leader and the principle of absolute clerical rule. This year, there were 592 candidates, and the Guardian Council uh, eliminated all but seven. But interestingly, some of the people who were disqualified 
were not just members of the rival faction, people who identify with Rouhani, uh, mistakenly dubbed by Westerners as moderates, but some of the closest allies of Khamenei himself, members of his inner circle, like Ali Larijani, who was a parliament speaker for 12 years. He was the head of the state radio and television. He is an IRGC brigadier general. He was a secretary for the Supreme National Security Council. And of course, uh, he was also, he is actually the head of the headquarters uh, that is uh, negotiating the 25-year strategic pact with China. So clearly, I think the elimination of Larry Johnny uh, points, if anything, to the kind of, if you will, paranoia and anxiety that Khamenei feels about the prospects of another uprising like the ones we saw in November 2000, in uh, December 2017, January 2018, and November 2019, which basically shook the regime to its core. And so he has felt that this time around, he cannot allow any divergence whatsoever from the policies that he has uh, laid down and his red lines. When we look at these seven candidates, you would know the the players of Iranian politics better than I do, but I have read from various sources that of the seven, most are hardliners, but there are two candidates that are classified a bit more as reformers and a bit more moderate. One of the names that was uh, put forward in a piece I read by one outlet had said that it was a lesser-known candidate, but uh, Abdul Nasser Hamati is one that, that is a bit more of a moderate. So they haven't just kept entirely pro-regime candidates, correct? Well, I, I think uh, calling Hemati a moderate, I think, is uh, too far-fetched. We call that Hemati was the governor of the central bank, and obviously he, like other cronies of Rouhani, have been in all, in all of the looting and plunder. That said, he was uh, declared as qualified to run because he has a snowball's chance in hell uh, to come out of the ballot box. So is he, that, just, sorry to interrupt he, there, but is this basically just so that the Guardian Council can say they didn't rig the entire thing, just to put, you know, one or two <laughs> people that don't have a chance that are not uh, regime loyalists? Well, he is a regime loyalist, because remember that everyone within this regime over the past 40 years, whether... Some people want to call them moderates or want to call them uh, hardliners. When it comes to strategic policies of this regime, namely uh, domestic suppression, exports of terrorism, the ballistic missile program, the nuclear weapons program, meddling in the uh, internal affairs of regional countries, they are all on board. If there is any difference is in terms of some of the tactics. But when it comes to uh, people like Hemati, remember the, the elections in Iran, if you want to call them elections, are determined not by what comes out of the ballot box, but it is the result of the internal balance of power. And so as such, when you have somebody like Ibrahim Raisi, who is currently the judiciary chief. And he's the favorite, the, the correct, the most likely winner? The pre- he's the preferred candidate. And uh, Larry Johnny was eliminated uh, to ensure that Raisi will come out of the ballot box. And remember that this man is a mass murderer par excellence. Since he was 19, 
He became the prosecutor in the province of Hamadan, Western Iran. He has no formal academic education. He has no formal even uh, religious education. And for 41 years, all that he has done has been issue death sentences. I spoke to uh, a former political prisoner, a woman uh, who spent six years in Hamadan prison. And she told me that Raisi was his tor her torturer and she was nine months pregnant. And she ran by me like dozens of names of her cellmates that Raisi sent to the gallows. And also worse than that, when Khomeini issued a fatwa to liquidate all political dissidents, particularly the members of the Mujahideen al khalqi MEK in 1988, Raisi was the key member of a death commission that sent 30,000 political prisoners who were already serving time. None had been sentenced to death. They pulled them before kangaroo courts and they asked him a question. What is your affiliation? And if they said MEK, they would be sent to hang. And Raisi oversaw that quite diligently, 24 hours a day, such that in a matter of a, two, three months, they wiped out all dissidents within the prisons of Iran. So he is known in Iran, by the way, as the um, uh, henchman of uh, 1988. And there's a hashtag uh, that has gone viral uh, by uh, Iranians, both inside Iran and outside of Iran. So clearly, uh, I want to say that this is not really an election. And uh, by bringing uh, Raisi out of the ballot box, uh, in some respects, Khamenei has shown what the way he wants to move forward when it comes to domestic issues and, of course, with regards to regional issues and international issues. Well, let's talk about those, because I know internally, domestically, the Ayatollah needs to consolidate and maintain power. I know you and I have spoken in the past about how some of that power may be weakening. But globally, Iran cannot put forward the Ayatollah as its face. And, you know, the, the Iranian regime right now wants the Iran deal with the United States restored. They want more credibility on the foreign stage. They want sanctions lifted. All of these factors are not possible if they have someone who is seen as the Ayatollah's puppet. So how does this kind of manifest? How do they brand the next president to the world to start looking like they are a bit more reform-minded, even if they aren't? Well, for the regime, I must say, in the past 42 years, the number one priority, the number one concern has been the domestic scene. And they have said this many, many times, that the existential threat to the survival of this decadent and medieval regime comes not from the United States, nor from any other uh, country abroad, but it's domestic. Why? Because the Mullahs, first of all, they usurp the leadership of a popular revolution. Second, all that they have done in the past 42 years is to murder, to imprison, to torture, to loot, to plunder, to incite violence across Iran's borders, and to blackmail and bully the international community. So as such, the Iranian population is uh, very much enraged, and at no time in the history of the regime uh, has the establishment, Khamenei, been so weak and vulnerable. 
Recall that I mentioned the major nationwide protests in 2017, 2018, 2019, and 2020. And this is where you had the largely unarmed civilians braving uh, killings in the streets and arrests and torture and coming in droves into the streets in, in November, they basically were in, active in 200 cities across Iran. And the, the mullahs felt that they might be overthrown. That is why Khamenei ordered his henchmen to open fire and they proceeded to kill 1,500 processes, mostly young people. So for Khamenei, holding on to his hegemony takes precedence over everything else. Naturally, he milked the Western countries by this so-called moderate uh, hardliner narrative. And the Westerners, some bought it wholesale, some deliberately looking for some uh, petty economic interest, promoted that. But now Khamenei has realized that this game will no longer work. He cannot tolerate any schism, uh, any fissures at the top. And that is why he has decided to do this basically in the futile hope and expectation that he can stem the coming tsunami, which is basically simmering beneath the ashes in Iran. And it will come, and when it comes, it is going to be far more ferocious, far more widespread than anything that we've seen before. And you can see that in lots of videos, video clips that are coming out of Iran now. You talked about the MEK and what it does. Well, inside Iran, the resistance units uh, that are affiliated with the MEK have been active in virtually every Iranian city calling for the boycott of the elections. And there are lots of videos that have come out that people say on camera that my vote is overthrow. My vote is regime change. There was a hashtag this weekend that went viral, became a trend. 200,000 or more tweets saying boycott Iran sham election. And so in this context uh, is a long answer to a question. For Khamenei, the number one priority is the domestic scene, is the Iranian street, and what he needs to do to prevent another outbreak of an uprising, especially since uh, even people within his own ranks, within his repressive forces, have uh, defected, they are demoralized, and you are very fearful uh, of their future, and they're thinking that the day of reckoning is coming fast, and that is why for him now, his international standing is uh, not at all a priority. That boycott movement you speak to, though, I, I think is significant to observers like myself, but in a, a practical, tangible sense it, sense, it reaffirms the status quo because the Ayatollah's preferred candidate is reelected if, if voter turnout is low. Does it make a statement that is significant if voter turnout is low, if the outcome is the Ayatollah's chosen president? I think that the boycott will serve several, if you will, send several signals. One, and this is, I think, the most important one, is to the international community that this regime is illegitimate. Look, when Bashar al-Assad, uh, they, they had elect, so-called elections in Syria, and Assad won with 95% of the vote, uh, American Secretary of State and uh, I think the French and the Germans 
they issued a joint statement rejecting that election as illegitimate. I think that the boycott of the elections obviously will send a signal that they should do the same vis-a-vis Iran. Secondly, it basically removes any justification whatsoever to engage this regime, to interact with this regime, and to offer it concessions, whether political or economic concessions. How can you deal with a regime whose president has had a hand in the killing of tens of thousands of political prisoners? How can you justify that? Are you going to shake his bloody hands? And so in that sense, I think that the international community has to look at itself in the mirror and see what they want to do and how they want to proceed. Because this regime, well, it has never had any legitimacy, but it tried to pose itself as a legitimate one by playing this moderate versus hardliner game. But now that game is over. Remember in 2017, Iranians in the millions were chanting hardliner reformer, the game is not over. Obviously the West chose to ignore that rallying cry. But now with Raisi becoming president, it's evident to everybody. Um, the boycott of the election will send a definitive message to all bodies concerned, all parties concerned, that it is time to shift the policy. It is time to uh, stop ignoring and closing eyes to the treacherous conduct of this regime, both within Iran and, of course, beyond its borders. Thanks very much. And before I, I let you go, Ali, I should ask you about the big event that the NCRI has coming up in just a, a few weeks' time. July, from July 10 to 12, there will be a major international gathering. It is called Free Iran World Summit 2021, with the theme being the democratic alternative on the march to victory, which will bring together tens of thousands of Iranians and others from all over the world with uh, some of the most distinguished dignitaries, lawmakers, people, dignitaries from Canada, from the US, from Europe, uh, basically for them to echo the call on the international community that one, they stand with the Iranian people in the struggle of freedom, and two, that the international community must change its approach to Iran and stop appeasing the murderous regime that rules Iran today. Well, I covered that uh, conference last year and look forward to doing it again this year. Ali, thank you very much for your time. Thank you for your time. Thank you very much, Andrew. That was Ali Safavi. And you know, it's interesting. I did cover that conference last year and the number of Canadians, mostly conservative, but it wasn't just conservatives. Judy Scrow, the liberal was there. And from the US, Democrats, Republicans, a lot of people rallying behind that idea that the Iranian regime has got to go. Yet it's amazing to see, even with that cross-partisan support, how much appeasement there is of that regime at the same time. So I appreciate the chance to speak with Ali. That does it for me for today. We'll be back tomorrow with a special edition of The Andrew Lawton Show, trying out a little bit of a new format for our Friday shows that you'll get a sense of tomorrow. So you'll have to tune into that. In the meantime, my thanks to you all from True North. This is The Andrew Lawton Show. Thank you, God bless, and good day, Canada. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.